Hi, I'm Sarah Grace McCandless, and welcome to On Brand, where we take a closer look at this growing desire for true connection between people and the companies that they engage with. So if you're joining us in this episode and you haven't heard any other episodes, I want to let you in on a little secret. This is part two of a two, my first two-part episode. And the reason is because I guest today is such an expert when it comes to customer experience there was no way I could get everything that we wanted to talk about into one episode. So if you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go take a listen to that, where we talk about the current state of customer experience, the impact of 2020, and some things to keep in mind in terms of what now and what next. Back with me for part two is Dan Gingas, customer experience uh, speaker and coach. Welcome back, Dan. Hey, and hey, Sarah Grace. And to be fair, you and I would need about 20 episodes to actually cover everything we want to talk about. That's right. I think we should just have our own show on Netflix or Hulu. So we'll just, yes. So call us Netflix and we'll, we'll talk about that. So I agree with you so much to talk about. I mean, Dan, you really are uh, a true subject matter expert. You're like the professor of customer experience is kind of how I think about it. Uh, your background, you've worked with some incredible brands before you went uh, independent, one of the most sought after keynote speakers. Um, I'm also your publicist. I don't know if you knew this. But Thank you. I appreciate that. Keep going. That's my side hustle I got going on. And you're also an author. So one thing I want to I want to talk today in the second part about sort of the anatomy of a good brand experience. What are those elements? What are the things to consider? And I think some of the best ways to do that is by telling some of our own experiences that we've had and really pinpointing what made it great. But before we start, can you talk to me? You're an author too. Your first book I have right next to me, Winning at Social Customer Care, How Top Brands Create Engaging Experiences on Social Media. And you have a new book coming out in just a few months. Uh, and if you're listening to this after the fact, it's summer of 2021 is, is the release date, I believe. Um, tell us about your new book. Uh, give us the title and tell us about the focus of that. Sure. Well, the title is called The Experience Maker, How to Create Remarkable Experiences That Your Customers Can't Wait to Share. And I can't wait to share this book with the world uh, because it has a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in it. Uh, I'm very proud of it. And it basically talks about how we know that customers are actually more willing to share positive experiences than negative ones. But as consumers, we don't have very many positive ones to share. Now, I do this test all the time when I, when I do keynotes. I ask an audience, who remembers the last time that a brand wowed them so much that they couldn't wait to tell their friends and family and post it on social media. And I get four or five hands that raise their hand, four or five people that raise their hands. Then I say, who remembers the last time that a company disappointed them? And invariably, almost every hand in the audience goes up. That's how we think of customer experience. We think about the times that brands disappointed us. And what I want to do is turn that around and focus on positivity and teach companies how to be that company that provides the positive experience that people want to share even more. Because when we remember the last time that we had an amazing experience, we do want to tell people about it because it's special, because it's unique, because it doesn't happen that often. And so my belief is that the companies that figure out how to do this with regularity are the ones that are gonna be able to make customer experience a true differentiator. I'm a believer that competing on price is a 
total loser's game. Just ask the two gas stations who are across the street from one another, right? One of them brings down gas by a penny a gallon. The other one copies it. They go down and down and down till eventually they're giving away the gas for free. Competing on product is also really, really difficult as those same gas station attendants will tell you. But think about a really innovative company like Uber, which completely changed the game for both drivers and passengers. But then over time, lots of competitors came in and did essentially the same thing. So competing on product can be really, really difficult as well. If you can't compete on price, you can't compete on product. What's left, my belief, customer experience. And the best part about customer experience is it is delivered by your employees who are human beings. By definition, your human beings are unique compared to anybody else's. So you can always, any company can create a unique customer experience using the unique employees that they have. And uh, so the, the book goes through, uh, which we'll, we'll chat about a, a formula for creating these, uh, these types of experiences. And one of the filters that I use, and this comes from having worked in corporate America for so long, is all of the examples that I give, and I give, there are dozens of case studies in this book. They are all, there's three things that are required before I will share them. They have to be simple, practical, and inexpensive. So I can tell you all sorts of customer experience stories where, uh, you know, company X or hotel Y uh, did a private fireworks show for their guests and spent millions of dollars. But that's not an example that's going to resonate with most companies because they don't have the budget to do that. So simple, practical, and inexpensive is what I focus on. And the idea is that you read these examples and that you're inspired to go back to work the next day and do something similar in your business. Creating a remarkable experience is not that hard. It doesn't have to be that expensive, but it does require some focus. Uh, that's great. And that really kind of evens the playing field, whether you're an emerging brand or an established brand, whether you are a local or national or global brand, it really makes it sort of uh, even for everyone to really get involved in here now without giving away too much from your book. You did mention sort of a formula, right? And there's some basics here you just said that can, the some qualifiers when creating these experiences and there's a formula. Is there anything that you can kind of share with us as a sneak peek on that formula? Absolutely. Yeah. So I call the formula WISE, which is a, an acronym. And that's because I want to make you wise after reading the book. And WISE stands for witty, immersive, shareable, and extraordinary. And those are four facets of experiences that make them remarkable. Now, you don't have to have all four in an experience. Even just one is fine. It will help you stand out. But the more that you can stack on, and I do share some great examples of, I think, uh, companies that have used all four in an experience. That's how you create a truly scalable, repeatable, and, and defendable experience from the point of defending against the competition. Uh, and then I will let you in on a little secret is that when I get through the wise methodology, I then surprise the reader by saying, hey, if I haven't done my job, if I just made you wise, I need to make you wiser in the competition. And so the final letter of the acronym is R, and that's about being responsive. And you and I talked about this in part one a little bit, but one of the things that happens when you create remarkable experiences consistently is you get more positive chatter on social media. You get more people talking about how much they love you. Mm -hmm. And it's such a missed opportunity when you ignore that. 
right? When I get off stage and somebody says, hey, great presentation, I loved your speech. If I keep walking, that's rude. And mm -hmm. I don't wanna do that, right? I wanna stop and say, hey, thanks for the compliment. I really appreciate it. But every day, there are tons and tons of positive comments aimed at brands that get ignored in social media. And so the responsive part is about our, um, the requirement, our responsibility to engage back with customers that take time out of their day and frankly use up their own social capital mm -hmm. to talk about how great we are. The least we can do is thank them, give them a little heart emoji back, like their tweet, whatever it is. Uh, and I think, and, and, and so that's the last part is the, is the R and, and that makes you really wiser in the competition because so many companies are not doing that. Uh, you're so right. And it's a conversation I have with our clients all the time and something that's really ramped up over the last two to three years. Um, it's like when I meet with our clients, I kind of go in almost like a doctor and try to evaluate the situation. They share their symptoms with me, but then I run a few tests, so to speak. I'm like, yeah, but there's all this other stuff going on. And often what I'll find is you are getting, it's, I use a very similar analogy. You're getting a compliment. You're at a party. Somebody walks up to you and says, oh my gosh, I, I love the work that you do, or you look fantastic. And it would be literally the equivalent of turning heel and walking out of the room without saying anything. And you would hopefully never do that as a person. So why are you doing that as a brand? And I think that speaks to another kind of setting the foundation here is that it's not just about when things are going wrong. It's about when things are going right as well. And it's an entire relationship. What's your point of view on that in terms of thinking of it as an interaction or more of that kind of lifetime value? What's your advice there? Well, I always love focusing on positive experiences because when we create positive experiences and people talk about us, they're actually doing the marketing for us. And as a marketer, I remember the holy grail is word of mouth marketing. And that's exactly what this is. It doesn't come from a viral video. It comes from getting an army of customers talking about you in a far more authentic and credible way than you talking about yourself. Similarly to going back to the speaker example or the cocktail example, right? It sounds a lot better when you say that I'm a good speaker than when I say I'm a good speaker. It just doesn't sound right. But I, but and, and it's similar with any company, right? We want our customers talking about how great we are because we know how great we are. We, we tell everybody in our marketing and our sales materials, but it's so much more credible when someone else is saying it. I love your point also about long-term value. And I do think that this is a, uh, a mistake that a lot of companies make. They focus on the individual transaction and they're worried about losing money on an individual transaction, especially one that's gone south. And let's think about it. When a transaction goes south and the customer is disappointed, we have a couple of choices. We can either help that customer become undisappointed or we can leave them disappointed. Now, which one do we think has a better chance of them continuing to be loyal to us and spend more in the future? And a company that has figured this out better than anyone is Amazon, right? That's why they make their returns so easy. That's why when things go south, they do everything they can to fix it even if they lose money on a single transaction. Yes, I know, Amazon is much bigger than any of the companies that are watching or listening to this show right now. I mm -hmm. get that, but the same rules can apply. If you focus on an individual transaction and you refuse to help your customer because you might lose 10 or $15 on the transaction, you gotta ask yourself, is that worth losing the customer forever? 
because the long-term value of that customer, the number of future purchases, the amount that they spend, and frankly, the number of people that they tell about you is worth so much more than that one single transaction. So remember that long-term value and it's okay to take a hit on an individual transaction in order to keep a customer. Well, I agree with you and I've had that uh, similar experiences with Amazon. There's some really cool stuff too. Like I just had a delivery this weekend and where I live, uh, there's a gate that some Amazon drivers uh, have the key, you know, the code to it. I don't even have it. Uh, And some don't and I can't buzz them in. And so <laughs> the driver, he didn't have, uh, or he or she did not have the, the code, but you could sort of, there's like a little landing and it was just, it was a small package and they were able to kind of put it through and put it in a safe place beyond the bar, right? And I got a notification that had been delivered um, with a photo <laughs> of where they left it, which I loved. But you, this is a great segue because I want to start getting into some examples. I, again, I think real life examples, um, maybe that you and I both have had, not necessarily people who are clients of ours, but just we're all consumers. So examples that we have, um, you know, your Amazon example made me think of Etsy, which has sort of a similar dynamic, but is also dealing with very small, independent kind of business owners and artists. And so I think that that's a really interesting dynamic in terms of not only do they need to make a good experience for the customers of Etsy, but the sellers of Etsy themselves. And I just had an experience where I ordered this really cool Queen's Gambit print from Italy. It looks sort of like a um, New Yorker cover. It's great. And I ordered it in November and it didn't show up and it didn't show up and it didn't show up. And then uh, the seller and I were going back and forth and we gave it till the holidays. And then he sent me another one. So sure enough, my first one shows up and then the second one showed up a week later. So the first one got lost in transit somewhere. And I am a pretty, well, I'm a very honest person, but I said to him, look, if the second one comes, I would, I'll pay you for it. I will find somebody to, you know, uh, I'll gift it to somebody else. He was so communicative with me throughout. And then I didn't have to offer to like pay for it because, you know, it was sort of as a seller, maybe he just sort of chalks it up as a shipping, you know, error and a loss, but I, I did offer to pay for it. And instead of charging me the full price, he sent me an invoice for 50% off the second one. And I'm going to tell the story a million times. And it makes me so endeared to Etsy. And I think that the reason that the seller showed up the way that he did one is probably because of who he is as a person, but two, I got to think Etsy's got an influence on that. Um, what are your thoughts on a, a dynamic like that? It's not the only situation. I think of Airbnb too, you know, with our host and the guest. Sure. Or Uber or Lyft or eBay, uh, lots of different marketplaces. And for sure, it's, it's a challenge. I remember talking um, in my first podcast, which is no longer publishing, but, but still available out there called Focus on Customer Service. Mm-hmm. I talked to the head of social care at eBay, and it was very fascinating to learn about how they are responding to inquiries, questions, and complaints from both sellers and buyers. Right. And they're, they have to kind of be the neutral party in between them and try to resolve things. And, uh, and yeah, even individuals that understand customer experience and customer service are going to be more successful. Whether or not Etsy has an influence over that particular seller if that particular seller keeps treating his customers that way, he's going to sell more. He's going to be more successful, right? The thing that we've got to take a step back and remember is without customers, we don't have a business. You can't look at the customer as the problem or as an annoyance, 
right? The customer is why we're in business. If you're not in business for your customer, you probably should be doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's a, that's a terrific example. Um, I love examples. And I, of course, I share positive examples all the time about uh, different companies that, that make me feel happy and proud to be their customer. And then I go and talk about them as well. Now, let's be fair. Not every customer is a Dan or a Sarah Grace who's got a platform to go talk about people, who's you know a podcaster, a blogger, and that sort of thing. But remember that people can still talk on their social media channels, to their friends and family, offline, in real life, and that stuff matters. You may not always be able to track it as much, but that's how you grow a business is you get people talking about you. And when, you, when they talk, because they're going to talk about the good experiences and the bad, why not have them talk about more good experiences? That's again, that's why what I'm all about. It's why I wrote the book is if they're going to talk about me, I might as well have them talking about positive experiences. I agree. And uh, you, you said something too, that really resonates and it's a conversation. I feel like uh, is at the core of a lot of my conversations with our, our clients is, you know, take a look at your brand through the lens of the consumer, not how the brand sees the brand, which is much more traditional marketing. I'm not telling you to let the consumer totally change your brand. I'm just saying that that is where you're going to find where you're hitting the mark, where you're missing the mark and where you can either optimize or uh, create more of right where you're hitting the mark. So um, when we think about that too, share another story with us. What's another really great example that kind of comes to mind either in terms of something that went right or something that went wrong and then became right. Is there something that comes to mind? Well, one of my favorite stories is a company called Sipsmith Gin. Now, Sipsmith is a London-based distillery that brought its product to the United States a couple of years ago. And one of the things they saw immediately was that the way we do tastings in the United States, and this is pre-pandemic, of course, is not particularly a great experience. So anybody that's been in a grocery store or a liquor store and there's you know, somebody standing behind a little stand there and they hand you a little plastic shot glass of some hard alcohol and they say, here, taste this. Now, the problem with that is that for those of us that have been out of college for a little while, that's not how we drink anymore. And so it's not actually a great way to taste a spirit and decide whether you like it. So Sip Smith decided to do something completely different. I was at a, uh, Chicago, of course, is known for its neighborhood festivals. We have so many cool neighborhoods and there's festivals almost every weekend of the summer. And I was at one of them and Sip Smith had a pop-up tent. You walked into this tent and the first thing you saw was this impeccably dressed bartender with, you know, complete with the apron, with the Sip Smith branding. The bar looked amazing. You go up there and the first thing he says is, what kind of tonic would you like with your gin and tonic? Now, fun fact, Sarah Grace, I am actually a licensed bartender. I went to bartending school way back in 1996, and I never knew there were different types of tonics. So he explained it to me. He said, wow, there's Mediterranean tonic and citrus tonic and, and Indian tonic and explained all the differences. So I choose my tonic. Then he sends me over to what is called the garnish bar. Now, those that know, know that a gin and tonic is usually one of the simplest drinks you can order. It has a lime in it. That's it. There are no garnishes, except in this pop-up tent there was. In fact, there were 16 different garnishes, lemons, limes, oranges, dried strawberries, rose petals, black pepper, um, all sorts of things that I had never even thought to put into a drink. Now, I did the math for you. 
there's over a billion combinations of drinks that you can create just from the tonic selection and the garnish selection. So I make my own drink. All right, this is really cool. This is immersive, right? They finally send you to the last station, which is really what makes it shareable. Mm -hmm. This is where they give you a little tag where you can name your drink and a tiny little clothespin that you can use to clip the name tag onto your drink. So as you're drinking it, people see the name of your drink. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think happens as soon as people clip the name of their drink to their drink? They put it down, they take out their phone, and they take a picture of it and post it on Instagram. It is an incredibly shareable moment. And so what I love about this experience is you walk out of there feeling like you know Sipsmith as a brand. You know what the spirit tastes like because you've had it in the wild. You've had it in a, in a real life situation. You've also been exposed to some really cool, interesting ideas like different garnishes and different ways to enjoy the cocktail. And you've gotten the personalization of getting to name your drink and share it with the world. So this is, of course, a very well thought through and very well orchestrated example. But what I want companies who are listening or watching to do is to think about where in our experience can we do any of those things? Where can we offer customers more choice than we do? Where can we educate them better? Like the bartender educated me on the different types of tonics. Where can we personalize better? I remember when I was at Discover and we introduced uh, now everybody does this, but we were, I think, the first to introduce when you logged on to the website, it said, good morning, Daniel. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then if you logged in in the evening, it said, good evening, Daniel. And then, uh, you know, the next step is, well, what if I don't want to be called Daniel? Because that's the name my mom used when she was mad at me. <laughs> and I wanted to only be Dan, right? So I, you allow people to edit it and to put in their nicknames. These kinds of things matter and they help with that deep connection. And that's what we're looking for is a deep connection. Because I think to tie this all together, when you have a deep connection with a brand and the brand has treated you well so many times, when the inevitable happens and something screws up, mm -hmm. the customer is going to be far more understanding than if they didn't have that relationship. And I've seen all the same stats you've seen that it only takes one bad experience for people to leave. But honestly, if I have a bad experience at Amazon, I'm going to be okay because I've had so many good experiences. They have so much goodwill built up with me that I'm going to allow them a bad experience every now and then. Now, if I have a company who hasn't done that and the first experience I have or the only experience I have is a bad one, I'm not likely to go back. Absolutely. I think that's the, that's how you just the distinctive point of that stat, right? I love the story that you told as you were telling it, you know, the personalization really um, spoke to me. And also they created something that was a very organic, shareable moment, not trying to slap a hashtag on something. It's like, no one's going to do that. No one's going to use that. And I swear this was not staged. Um, but I am sitting here staring at my care of vitamin packet to take today. And this is sort of my version of the story you just told. You can even see, hi, Sarah Grace. I used to only be Sarah Grace when I was in trouble, by the way. Um, but now it's it's my fault. That's what everyone calls me now, right? Because I love, it's my grandmother's name. Um, so it's very personal. It doesn't even just say, hi, Sarah. Care of is a company that is in the vitamin supplement space. And what I love about them is that my experience has been also very consistent no matter at what point of the journey or where I'm interacting with them. And my first interaction came by way of an Instagram ad that led me to a website that led me to a very 
easy, user-friendly quiz to identify what types of supplements should I be taking. And these packets come and there's a 30-day supply and there's one per day. This is a biodegradable um, packet. And I can customize this and change this anytime I want. They're really proactive about letting me know, not that my next shipment has shipped, but that I've got about a week left to change that. The unboxing experience is beautiful. It says my name on it. There's a card in there. I'm getting educated. So I had a, I've had a really good experience with them. I did have an experience where I realized I wanted to change something in my packet. And I ended up also talking to them on the phone, making the change, um, but then realized there was still something in my packet that sort of presented the same issue. Um, so without me even asking, they not only credited me for that vitamin for the month, but they gave me a credit for my next order. And again, it was one of those proactive things and it was so personable. I have talked to them on Twitter DM. I've talked to them on the phone. I've gotten emails from them and I really feel like they know me, they care about me and I understand who they are as a brand. I feel like they have purpose and value and they're very human and their approach to manage or to uh, interacting with me and engaging with me, that matters. Um, you know, just to kind of like tie things together. I mean, we could, again, I'm sure you and I, between our experience personal and the clients that we've worked with, we have so many examples that we could share, but I would love for, to kind of wrap things up, where does purpose in a brand and transparency, how does that play into creating these experiences as well? That's a great question. And although I haven't done as much studying and writing on this particular topic as some others, I do have, I think, some reasonably strong opinions on it. There's no question that the younger generations, and I'm, I'm a Gen X, so we'll say younger than I am, uh, that purpose has become a very important part of doing business with a company. That purpose could be environmental, it could be political, it could be all sorts of things. Um, one of the other brands that I love is called Imperfect Produce, and I love that its purpose is to save food waste and to prevent food from imperfectly you know, edible food from going into the landfills. And that purpose makes me stay as a customer because I believe in it. And even though there's times where I've been like, well, you know, if I'm cutting expenses, maybe this is an easy thing to cut, I stick with them. And I think the idea behind purpose is it's got to be genuine, first of all. And I would argue that you probably want it to be inclusive. There's nothing wrong, for example, with taking a political stance or taking a religious stance. But you have to understand when you're doing that, that you are excluding some of your potential customer base. And I don't know about you, but I don't think most companies have enough customers that they can afford to exclude people from the, the, the prospect list, right? So I think you have to be careful about that. Uh, but I think finding your purpose is important, communicating your purpose is important, and it's got to be authentic. You know, another thing that we saw during the pandemic is we saw the Black Lives Matter movement really grow. And we saw similarly brands doing a really good job with it and brands just jumping on the bandwagon. And, you know, it's like they don't think that us viewing this they don't think we're smart enough to realize that they're just jumping on the bandwagon, that changing your you know, Twitter profile to be black is you know, a big thing. That mm -hmm. is, it's not authentic, right? And so it doesn't hit the way that you want it to hit. So if you are gonna believe in something and stand for something, do it with passion, do it with authenticity, and do it in a way that feels inclusive so that 
those that may not believe in or agree with can still be a part of your community. Um, and I think, you know, that can be a little bit tricky, but it's, um, I think it's worth it. And uh, I, I could give some examples there, but I want to be careful about, uh, about bashing some companies that I think have maybe done that wrong. Um, but particularly, let's, let me just give a broad example, particularly ones that, are, um, that have a passion around religion. Mm-hmm. I just have to be careful. There's nothing wrong with uh, being passionate about your religion and being a believer. But as a company, What's, what you risk doing is you risk inadvertently broadcasting, hey, if you're not part of this religion, we don't want you as a customer. And then unless you are unless you are you have too many customers and that's your problem, I think you want to be careful with it. I think it's a great point. It also reminds me a little bit of our part one conversation when we talked at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of reaction versus more thoughtful response. So again, encourage everyone to go and take a listen to that as well. Speaking of listening, as we wrap things up, tell us where we can find you. Um, You are a podcast host as well. And tell us when the book is coming out. So the book will be available uh, in hardcover on September 14th. Uh, it'll be available for pre-sale, maybe even by the time this episode runs. If not, it should be, they haven't given me an exact date. We'll call it late March, early April. Okay. And uh, you can find me at dangingus.com. Or if you don't want to try to spend, to spell my name, you can go to theexperiencemaker.com, theexperiencemaker.com, and you'll get to the exact same place. Uh, definitely hit me up on Twitter at dgingus or LinkedIn. I love engaging with people. I do practice what I preach. So if you reach out and talk to me, I promise I will be responsive, the R in wiser. <laughs> Great. Well, I love that you walk the walk and, and not just talk the talk. And, you know, you have two podcasts of your own right now too. experience this show and experience maker. Yeah. Yes. Uh, experience this. I do with my uh, buddy, uh, Joey Coleman. We just started season seven. I wow. uh, can't believe we've been doing it this long, but uh, it's so much fun. It is kind of the anti-podcast podcast in the sense that it does not sound like any other business podcast. It's very intentional. We figured that if we were going to talk about experience, we needed to create a listening experience. So I think we've done a, a great job of that, and I'm very proud of that work. And then uh, the Experience Maker Show is my live show that I broadcast on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook once a week on Thursdays at noon Eastern. And then I also uh, turn that into a podcast as well. So if you are if you prefer listening instead of viewing, uh, you can get it there as well. Great. Well, so looking forward to that. Um, definitely. Okay. Well, this is part one, part two. There are more parts to come. Definitely want to have you back, especially when the book comes out. I can't wait to read it. Dan, thank you so much for your time and your insights and your expertise. So much to learn here and just really um, value your opinion, your perspective, and your point of view in this crazy world of customer experience. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Grace. I value you as well. I value our friendship. And I always learn something when I talk to you as well. And and, uh, keep up the great work. Thanks again. 